Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 738 with Trey Smith. Basically, you project the restaurant the worst it could possibly be in your mind. And if you can stay in business based off those numbers, then you probably have a good concept. Don't be afraid to make, like we don't make a lot of money, but we insist on making enough money to where we get paid a livable wage, our staff gets paid, and and we stay in business. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. Find out why Toast POS is the number one recommended restaurant POS system on Restaurants Unstoppable. If you're going to survive this upcoming recession, you have got to adapt. And you can't just adapt. You have to adapt fast. With Toast's cloud-based restaurant POS, your system will update to evolve along with changing industry trends and guest expectations. To learn more, head over to toasttab.com slash unstoppable. And because you are Restaurant Unstoppable listeners, for a limited time, you will get one month free POS software, three months of free digital ordering tools, and 50% off implementation to ease the impact of COVID-19. This is a value of $1,000, but you've got to use our links. What's going on, Unstoppables? Before I let you know what we got going on today, just a quick reminder, you got to use toasttab.com slash unstoppable if you want to get the best deal out there on toast up to $2,000. So hit pause right now. Go to toasttab.com slash unstoppable if you're in the market and just get on their radar as a restaurant unstoppable lead. You have to use that link. It's super important. And let me know. Shoot me an email, eric at restaurant unstoppable when you use that link so I can track it on my end. I want to make sure you guys are getting the best deal out there. So we have Trey Smith joining us today from St. Germain in New Orleans. Really great conversation. We talk about how important it is to let somebody know that they're good at what they do or else they may never know. And uh, for Trey, somebody said, you know, you got what it takes to do this for a living. And now that stuck with him. And it is what he's doing for a living, Uh, teaching your staff how to be accountable. If you want to open a restaurant, go to work for somebody who's opening restaurants. It's a lot different than going to work for somebody who owns a restaurant. Uh, Do interesting things. You are your story, your story, whatever you've done in your life, that that's your story. So if you want an interesting story, start doing interesting things. Uh, and if you want to travel, make sure you do it now before it's too late. Is something else we talk about. Uh, knowing you're never too small to make an impression on somebody. So don't think small. If something is bothering you, say it. It's better to put it out there than let it build up and you explode like a week or two later. Uh, when you're partnering with people, make sure you partner with people who take criticism well. Swallowing your pride and getting out of the way when someone is better than you at something. So basically where that comes up in today's story is they have a small team and regardless of whether or not you're an owner, if people are better than you, then just get out of the way and let them flourish. Don't, don't hold them back. Don't let your pride get in the way. Uh, talking to successful people and asking questions, just ask. You'll be surprised at what's out there. And then there's just definitely some great advice around, uh, creating a sustainable business that can take care of you and your partners and the, 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 I feel like this is a really safe approach to opening a restaurant came out of today's conversation. So I hope you guys enjoy it. Here it is. 
With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guest, Trey Smith. Trey, are you feeling unstoppable today, man? I am. I am. Nice. I cannot wait to get into this story. So St. Germain was created by Drew DeLauder and Chef Blake Aguilard and also obviously Trey Smith sitting across from me. Drew and Trey met in 2008 at the Culinary Institute Hyde Park, New York. They both moved to New Orleans after school where Drew worked at Susan Spicer's Bayona. Did I say that correctly? Uh, Bayona. Bayona. Thank you. Restaurant working his way to captain, gaining valuable service experience as well as wine and spirit knowledge. While Smith went to work for Chef Michael Gulata at, at Restaurant August where he met and worked alongside Blake. After some Europe and traveling and working in other cities. The trio reunited and St. Germain was born. I cannot wait to dive in to your story, but let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. What do you got for us? Well, I'm actually drinking a cup of coffee in a mug uh, that has a quote on it. It says, success is a journey, not a destination. But the interesting thing about the mug is I didn't buy it. When we did the demolition in this building, when we were moving the rubble, just happened to find this mug there, and it's been, sent, it's been with me ever since. How appropriate is that, right? I'm sure, you, were you having a day where you're just like, oh my God, was there like a pile of rubble? And you're like, this, like what did we bite off, right? And then you get to see this mic. You're like, oh, it's like I'm going to reflect back at this someday. And You know, more than anything, it was just uh, we had been doing so much demolition. There's dust in the air and we're drinking out of these styrofoam, you know, coffee things, which you probably shouldn't have been using disposable yeah. ones. <laughs> but at the time we used whatever we had and they were just dusty. And I remember finding that mug and just being excited to clean it and drink coffee out of a mug for a change. Right. Did you notice what it said immediately? Or I did- didn't. It took me a while. It took me a while. And then one day I looked at it and I said, how appropriate. Well, how does that, that quote this, this or this, that idea that success is a journey? How has that resonated with you since reflecting on that, that, Well, I think more than anything, I think a lot of times people set goals in their lives. And when they reach them, a lot of times it's not achieving the goal that what is what feels good. It's looking back at the journey and thinking to yourself, I can't believe I did this. You know, there are several stages in my career, academic career, where I thought if I could just achieve this, I will have made it, you know, in my mind. And then it comes and you're thinking about the next thing. Yeah, you're too, you're too consumed with the next move that you can't even like, appreciate what you have achieved. But, but then you just learn to appreciate the journey. You know? it's, 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 not about, you know, it's not about having a busy restaurant as much as it's about making food that people like. And then the byproduct is you have a busy restaurant. Yeah, I think it's really important to take that time to reflect on the journey because sometimes we get so caught up in the right now and the future that we forget to realize we don't look at the progress we made. Very you, true. You know, and I think that's really important to to stop and reflect and just appreciate how far you've come. Absolutely. Um, awesome stuff. Great way to get this thing started. So as, as far as journeys go, where does it start to make sense to share your journey? I, I know you went to culinary school, so you must have known it somewhat of an early age that you wanted to do something here? I guess I did. I mean, the thing was, is I was always interested in cooking, but I didn't, you know, and I I remember having a conversation with my parents, you know, before basically in high school, you know, where they said, if you want to be a chef, you know, maybe you should try to move to Paris and go to culinary school. But, you know, I was a, I was a very fortunate student, I guess you would say. So college was something that just was right there. I ended up going, I'm born in Texas. So Rice University is like this really prestigious university for me. uh, And I had the opportunity to go there. So I did. It just felt like something I couldn't turn down at the time. 
uh, did that, uh, thought I wanted to be an investment banker. So I got an economics degree from Rice. So what year is it when you graduated from Rice? So I would have graduated in, from Rice in 2006. Okay, gotcha. And then... You said would have graduated, so... No, I did. You I did. did. Yeah, okay. yeah I, gradu- I actually graduated and then went to law school after that. Damn. But I, I, I thought I wanted to be an investment banker at Rice, and that wasn't for me. And then I'm like, well, what am I going to do now? Right. And then took the LSAT on a whim and then it was like, well, I guess now I could go to law school if I want. So I did. Uh, and then it was in law school. So I, I, I went to law school. I was there for two years. I was going into the third year. Uh, so I started the, basically started the first semester of my last year. And that was when you had to start paying fees to, for the, to the bar association and things like that. And I remember when that started to come up where it's like, yeah, it's going to be, you know, $10,000 to do this. And I just remember thinking to myself, like, I don't want to do this. Yeah. And, I, and I actually at the time had started cooking uh, and I was cooking full time at the time, which wasn't really beneficial to my schoolwork. But I was just so in to the cooking that I just I just realized. Where were you cooking? So there was a. Uh, a certified master chef uh, from Germany who had this restaurant there. Uh, what city is Rice? Is this, is this where Rice? So, well, so is? I went undergrad at Rice, and then I went to University of Oklahoma. Okay. So I went to high school in Oklahoma. So for gotcha. me, it was like yeah, I was a big Oklahoma football fan. So the idea of going back and uh, and I hadn't put that much thought into law school. It was kind of a last minute thing when I took the LSAT and everything. Yeah. So it was a cool thing, and there just happened to be this chef there that had this restaurant. Uh, and it was just a classic sort of restaurant, but he was, uh, you know, he was a certified master chef, which is this, you know, it's, it doesn't necessarily translate into a lot of restaurants, but for people that are really interested in like competition cooking and things, which I wasn't, but at the time I was fascinated by, he'd do these crazy terrines and things like that. So I started working for him. There's a book out there. I think, I think it's the soul of a chef Yeah, that that profiles the journey of people going through the master uh, chef uh, certificate. Exactly. Uh, It's crazy what they have to do. It's so much stress. I think what percentage of people actually that go through that actually come out the other end. I think it's a small percentage, like five to 10 percent or something like that actually get certified it, it's it's very small and i think if i understand correctly i think you have to work a certain number of years under a certified master chef which is also like i said it lends itself more to the people that do these competitions and things yeah. so you'll probably end up working at a a, a fine country club or in this case this guy had a restaurant but he he was a great chef but it was like you know the skill set that you need for the cmc exam is different than the way most people eat you know it'll be you know smoke trout aspic yeah and you might be an incredible chef but can you lead a kitchen can you you know, can you run a business? Like those are the other other variables that like, I, I guess kind of come into. I, I don't it, know. Yeah, and he, I mean, he ran a very successful Did restaurant, he? and he was okay. great. But it's, I think, what drew me to him were he was like, I can show you some of these things. And at the time, I was reading all the Michael Ruhlman books, like Soul yep. of a Chef and things. So the idea of learning how to make some of these terrines, even though they weren't sold at the restaurant, you know, the idea of being able to do that, yeah. I found I found really cool. That's cool. So what? So he taught you a lot about food. Um, did he see something in you? Did he help you realize a passion that you wouldn't have otherwise, otherwise found? Well, you know, I got to say he was super respectful about law school. You know, I said I can work because the way law school is set up is you really don't have to do that much work to turn in during the semester. But when finals come, your entire grade is the final. Yeah. So I would tell him, you know, I can work 40 hours a week, which to me now, 40 hours a week isn't full time. But when you're a full time law student, yeah. 40 hours a week is an eternity. Right. Uh, and, and he was like, 
I, I said, I can work these hours, but when finals comes, I need to be off for like three weeks so I can make this happen. Yeah. And he was like, okay. Uh, of course, I'd keep up with the readings during the semester, but but it was the end where you were really like, I need to morning to night study. Yeah. And uh, But anyway, I remember towards the end, he said to me, he said, you know, he said, if you want to do this for a living, you really could. Mm. And he, that's all he said to me. He just said, if you want to do this for a living, you really could. You know, and he was like, you pick this up pretty fast. He's like, uh, you pay attention to the right things. He's like, if you want to do it for a living, you could. And I guess that just stuck with me. What where, were the right things that you were paying attention to? Well, I think, I mean, later, I think I realized it was being kind of a perfectionist about things mm. where, where if, if you try something, you know, some people will taste something and the chef will tell, tell them it needs more acid and you add more acid, but you're not really thinking about how it balances and things like that. You almost have to be obsessive in a way. It's, I would say it's similar to like a mimic, you know, like someone who just does naturally good impressions of somebody. They can't help when they're talking to you or me, they can't help but watch that you put the tongue at the roof of your mouth or jet your chin out when you say a certain thing. So it's like in cooking, it's the same way in terms of recreating dishes and things like that, which a lot of chefs like people who can recreate dishes really well. So it's kind of obsessing about the little details. Yeah. Was a chef Jason Dady that was talking about this? I talked to so many people. It's so hard to keep track of who says what, but this the idea of there's so much to be learned in a kitchen. If you just pay attention and i think it was chef Dady. it could have been somebody else but this idea of just like oh maybe it was diego maybe it was diego galicia where you just listen you pay attention to what's going on and like there's lessons to be had everywhere i think it actually might have been jason Dady. now that i think about it. i'm back okay. and forth but the, the the idea that like just pay attention because like the, what you're saying like what where is the like maybe you're not on the line yet maybe you're doing garmage or whatever but you can be watching the line in the hotline you know and seeing exactly how much time they're leaving the pan on the burner and like watching their patterns and, and like picking up their, on their routines and like learning so like if you do have to step in you have an idea right? absolutely um i love that so the other thing that i love about your story up to this point too is the significance of letting people know they're good at something um, we don't know we're good at stuff until I think other people tell us, you know, sometimes we can pick up on it. Maybe we're doing things a little bit faster. Or our thing comes out better than the person next to us, but to hear it from somebody else is so powerful. Do you think you would have been on this, this path if you didn't reinforce or acknowledge your ability? Well, I think, I think it's important to get on the journey for somebody to tell you the, what you need to hear. But I actually think one of the last steps of the journey, not that I'm at the last step of my journey, but I think one of the, one of the final steps before you reach this point where you can kind of grow on your own is getting to the point where you're the one who tells yourself good job. Mm. You know, you don't, you, you almost have this, you know, it's like, I, I've been lucky. I worked for a lot of chefs that were really respectful and really nice, but they didn't say good job very often. They, you know, there's never negativity, but it was kind of one of those things where if you're like, what do you think of this dish? Is it good? They would look at you and be like, well, what do you think of it? Yeah. You know, and you're and you're you kind of look at them and they're like, if if you don't already think it's great that, you know, they're like, you need to be coming to me and saying, how great was that polenta? But at the same time, I don't think, you know, until, you know, you're right. And you have to get that experience to have something to hold it against. Yeah, I think it's important to start the journey with people giving you positive feedback. But then towards the end, you almost have to do it for you at a point. For sure. I I agree with that statement. So. Did this experience, like, just did you even take the test? Did you not finish law school? Like, what happened? So um, I would have stayed to finish law school, but as it turns out, the CIA doesn't match up on the same semesters. And uh, 
the CIA had offered me a scholarship. Uh, I mean, not a full scholarship, but a fair scholarship. But it was based off my SAT score, which yeah. those only last like five years. So it turns out if I would have gone the last semester, you know, that finished the last year of law school, I would have lost that scholarship. So I kind of had to make because the your, your score would have gone down. Yeah, well, because it would no longer be valid. Oh, OK, so of course I talked to him. I'm like, well, the score doesn't change after five years. And they're like, no, that's just the way we do it. You know, the scores last for five years. That's the or until there's a new score i guess yeah and okay. i i wasn't about to retake the sat yeah. at 20 so you got a you got a scholarship to the culinary institute of america i did not a full ride but it was it was uh and that was another thing the scholarship also had to do with going uh you know because they roll all year so if you go kind of on the not peak time of the year you have a better shot at a scholarship as well okay so, so this is 2008 that you decide you get this positive reinforcement you realize you have this passion for cooking you're going to the cia um you got experience before going to the CIA, which I think is really important. How did that help you? Oh, tremendously. Yeah. You know, and having, and, and that chef was really tough. I, I've been lucky. I've had really, really tough chefs that I work for, but at the same time, I've never really worked for an abusive chef. It was always like heavy handed, tough love, but, but respectful, you know? Yeah. So, uh, any key mentors at the CIA? And I, th- I love that you went, you were probably 22 or 23 at this time. Yeah. So I, I was, and I think that was important. And what I was leaving was important because I knew I had to hit the ground running when mm-hmm. I got there. Yeah. And I feel like I, there's so much encouragement for kids to go to culinary school out of high school. And I think it's just a bad idea, honestly, um, because I feel like the people I've spoken to who've gotten the most out of the CIA were like in their mid to like, Closer to their mid twenties, right? Yes. And, they, and like, how did you use that experience? Other, like, if you were to go to culinary school when you're 18, what what would the story have been? Yeah. Well, I mean, I'd probably be a lawyer right now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but no, I mean, the thing is, is so culinary school is not nece- You know, obviously, you can be really successful without going, and you can also go to a culinary school that's not the CIA. But the fact of the matter is, is the CIA does have more resources than any other culinary school. So if you're somebody who goes and just tries to pass, then you don't necessarily need to go there. Exactly. But they have, you know, the largest library or one of the largest libraries of cookbooks. You know, it's like I made myself go to the library for one hour every day. Man to read something, you know, and they had every, you know, the, every New York times dining section ever printed every food and wine, every gourmet. So so I just made myself cause I was kind of like, I know what I'm giving up. You know, I basically made it through the hard part of law school. You know, I've got this path to an easy career, not easy, but I mean, something that's there, you give it up to go to a job where you're going to make 10, 50 an hour. And I think the the other resources that are are the most, in my opinion, the most valuable resource that the CIA, the Culinary Institute of America can give you is access to that network. Absolutely. And I think that's the one thing, the most valuable thing you're paying for if you choose to go that route is if you bust your ass and you make an impression on these instructors, they're going to open their network to you. They're going to get you on a team and you're only as good as the people you surround yourself with. Absolutely. I I mean, it's hard to put a price on that, right? Absolutely. And yeah, and a lot of the chefs, you know, they'll give you what you put into it. Yeah. And that's the thing. At 18 years old, I just don't think you have maturity to put into it. You're not going to get that return. You know, like, yeah, I mean, you could be incredibly successful, but it would be hard to imagine that you wouldn't be more successful at a later age. Definitely. So any other, any mentors during this time that we, we should, you know, tip our hat to or anybody who had a big influence on you during this time? Um, you know, 
Yeah, actually, there was one chef. His name was Ted Rowe, and he was in charge of one of the restaurants there. And for whatever reason, uh, for whatever reason, he just clicked with me. You know, he was probably one of the toughest ones that I that I met there. And I and I don't know, uh, you know, like I don't know him personally outside of class or anything like that. But I just remember in class, he was very. Uh, he was very tough, but I, you know, I've always kind of looked throughout my career for people that I thought that their management style was something that was effective on me and tried to mimic it, you yeah. know, it's like, and that was one of those people where I just really liked the way he gave criticism. What was his management style? Well, again, it was kind of that, that really tough, like, I'm not going to let anything slide and I'm going to make you admit to me that you don't think it's right either mm-hmm. you know because a lot of people will try to do that thing where they're you know they just try to kind of back out of the situation and sometimes it's not that the chef wants to hold you accountable it's as much as they want you to hold yourself accountable so it's kind of one of those things where you're not going to get out of this so easily by just saying yes yeah, chef it's like i need you to understand why you can't do what you just did so that you're not going to do it again yeah so um give me an example of what's that would look like how he well, how would he bring something to your attention in a way that would make you question it well you know it would be something like even if you were just garnishing a dish and like the herbs that you put on there were wilted you know he would come up and and say you know these herbs are wilted you know and it would be very easy to just say these herbs are wilted let's go ahead and replace it with something else but you know kind of stopping you and saying you know i shouldn't have to tell you that these herbs are wilted you can see that it's wilted why'd you put it on there in the first place Mm -hmm. and then you're like well i guess maybe i was just busy and it was at the top and he's like well you know is that how you're going to be for the rest of your career and you're like no i'm not you know and it just it sticks with you and then all of a sudden it's not just about you know the basil or the arugula you put on there it's now all of a sudden it's the peas or whatever else that you put on there you know you just you kind of uh you're learning concepts more so than just a lesson yeah perception is reality i feel like what we perceive is our culture. Whatever it is, is the culture of your business. So you have to set those standards. You have to let people know that and you have to empower people to make those decisions and let them know when those decisions need to be made that I shouldn't have to tell you this. Yeah. Like this is our expectation. This is our culture. This is our standard, right? Uh, awesome stuff. Any other key mentors or key lessons from this one individual? Well, uh, not so much him, but there, there actually was another instructor at the CIA. It's funny. It's like one of our, well, it was, I guess it was a signature dish for a little while here. It was our French omelet. Okay. And uh, I remember when I was in law school, I used to just obsess about reading, you know, culinary magazines and things like that. And uh, I never really was into omelets. Okay. Uh, you know, the American omelet with the toasted sides and things like that. And we had this egg cooking class. And I remember I'd read this article about this beautiful French omelet that was, you know, no color and like a cloud and custardy and it was some writer had written it in gourmet magazine back when it was still around uh and basically was talking about this american chef that happened to be cooking at this french hotel and made this omelet well i get to the class and i tell the instructor who actually i only think taught at cia for like two or three weeks like he was or or, you know one one course you know the egg class is like three (laughs) weeks that's it and uh but anyway i tell him about this article i'm like do you know what i'm talking about and he said i know exactly what you're talking about and he said i'll tell you what he's like if you're that passionate about learning about this omelet he's like i'll only have you cook omelets uh you won't do any 
any of the other stuff in the class, you'll just do that. And I must have made, you know, a thousand omelets, just one <laughs> after the other. And uh, at the end, you know, of course, you don't master it, you know, but he says, I think you now know enough about what's right and wrong to where you'll be able to figure it out. And I said, thanks. And I was walking out the class the last day, and I don't know how I didn't notice it, but it was it was very common for instructors there if they if they had you know write ups or something they might frame it and put it on the wall and I look up on the wall it was him wasn't it, it was him that's crazy was I him. was wondering the entire time it was, it was absurd him. that it is so him. crazy and did you let him did like what did you say when like the, he didn't let you know at all that that was him you never like. It, it, it never came up. He never said anything. It's funny. We had uh, Allison Cook, the food critic from the Houston Chronicle, was here, and uh, she was at, she was asking about the omelet because for a while we had the omelet. So we changed the menu all the time. You know, it's two new menus every month, but we'd always have a different version of the omelet on there. Yeah. And uh, she had the omelet, and she was because it's it's very unique. Uh, and she, she asked about it. She's like, what's the deal with this omelet? And I told her the story and she, and, and she actually said that, uh, she knew a lot of people that used to work at the old gourmet magazine. So she was going to reach out to them and try to find that article and that guy's name. So I could track him down. Have but, you ever gotten it? Like, have you, like, I would love to hear if you guys cross paths in the future. And if you continue to try to perfect that omelet, it gives you like the seal of approval of like, you've, you've done it, you've mastered it. It'd be interesting. I mean, I've changed it a lot from what he did, but he, he was the one that taught me one key thing. Like the biggest thing about a French omelet that's different from his style was he did the style where there were the cubes of butter in the egg before it goes into the pan. Okay. And the idea is part of what makes a French omelet special is that butter breaks at the same temperature that eggs are fully cooked. Okay. So if you throw the butter in the pan before you put in the egg, you're basically just breaking the butter versus if you put the butter in with the egg and you mount it almost like a sauce, what happens is you have emulsified butter in the omelet and it gives it more of this sort of custardy texture Ooh. than if it's just basically soft scrambled egg with butter around Interesting. it. Awesome. Um, I'm loving this conversation. I'm wondering if now is a good time to take a break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. Did you know Toast is the number one most recommended POS on Restaurant Unstoppable? I'm sure it has something to do with the fact that more than two-thirds of their employees have worked in the restaurant industry. And I'm feeling pretty confident that has something to do with their commission-free online ordering, which is a hot ticket right now, which lets guests easily order directly from restaurants for pickup or contactless delivery to keep revenue flowing during these uncertain times. They even have delivery services, which dispatches local drivers through an on-demand network to keep your community fed and revenue coming. Regardless of the reason why people are recommending Toast, I highly recommend you go check them out during this industry-wide pause. To learn more head to toasttab.com slash unstoppable and because you are restaurant unstoppable listeners for a limited time get one month of free pos software three months of free digital ordering tools and 50 percent off implementation to ease the impact of covid19 this is a value of one thousand dollars one more time that's toast tab dot com slash unstoppable you have to use that link to save one thousand dollars so we're back and i know you met drew at culinary school but i think we're going to be speaking to drew while we're out here so i'll let him tell that story and how you two met but this after graduating cia you you found yourself in new orleans i did i new did. orleans yep i'm working yep. on it no worries no worries <laughs> but yeah i ended up uh you know i 
I knew I wanted to go again, you know, with leaving law school and being a little bit older, you know, at this point, you know, I'm what, 24 or something like that. I knew that I needed to go to a restaurant that not only was really good food wise, but it it needed to be really technique driven because I felt like I needed to compress a lot of lessons into a shorter period of time. And I I traveled and ate at a lot of restaurants uh, that I thought could fit the bill. And when I went to eat at Restaurant August, uh, Mike Galata was the chef there. And I met him and I tried the food. And it wasn't just that it was great. It was the fact that, you know, they were doing, instead of just a seared piece of fish with a Blanc, it was, uh, you know, a fish roulade, you know, where they're utilizing the scraps and making a mousse, Mm. you know, as part of it. So it was, it was also the fact that it was so technique driven. I wanted to learn those things. So that's how I ended up in New Orleans. So how did Mike find himself at, he was the the original. So, uh, John Besh was the chef owner of August. It was his flagship, Okay, but Mike was the chef de cuisine there. Gotcha. That's how it was. Um, so what did you learn from Mike during, I mean, he must've made an impression on you because you chose to continue to work with him when he went on to do his own thing when he opened MoFo, correct? Correct. Yeah. Correct. So that was, yeah, that was kind of a journey with Mike. It's like, well, one, I was very impressed with Mike the first time I met him because he was very nice, but very like professional and serious about what he did. So I just, I really, and there's a sense of like competitiveness in cooking and Mike was, you know, state champion wrestler. He's like, okay. he's really competitive and I like that. Um, so I went to, you know, went to work there, but, uh, but it was, the cooking was hard there. And, and, and what I mean by that is it wasn't like it was a place where the menu never changed. It was a situation where you'd walk in one day and you thought your day wasn't going to be too bad. And then he would walk up to you or, you know, one of the sous chefs would walk up to you and they'd say, well, the dish that you have, you know, one of your five dishes has now been changed to this. Here's a list of what's going to be on there. And it was no, I mean, yeah, obviously if it was something where they had a specific recipe, you'd get it, but it was very rare. Okay. Typically a, a new, you'd walk in, they'd be like, you're going to do a venison dish tonight and it's going to have, uh, you know, it's going to have a sauce. I want you to make it kind of like a Bordelaise, but instead of using bone marrow, I want you to use, you know, blah, 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 and then finish it with, you know, this. So it was almost explained to you and you were expected to know the technique to do it. So it was great because you really did have to, and if it was bad, you know, you were going to have a problem, but you just kind of got used to it. Did you ever have that situation where it was bad? You know, I don't think, well, yeah, I definitely had times where it was bad, but I never had an issue. I never had a period where it was bad and I ran out of time. You know, it's like I would make it. And if I didn't think it was good, it would be three o'clock and I didn't need the dish until four o'clock, you know, so I would just remake it. And I think also that, that, that habit, that value that this original chef put into you or not the original, but when you're at school, like I shouldn't have to tell you that this isn't right. Having that new standard of like, maybe if you were, if you never got that lesson, you might just be like, well, there it is. That's my rendition. And then you don't say anything until like four, you know? And now like the chef is like, what are you bringing me? But if you, but having that standard that you, that this chef put into you, now you can be like, you can get that early approval to give you time to, to make it right. I don't know if I'm making a stretch there or not. Yeah. And, and you also learn, you know, it's really important to learn how to ask for help too. Yeah. You know, and Mike was really good about that. You know, if one of the components, you know, if he was like, all right, I want you to do a dish and it's going to be a pasta stuffed with a mousse made from sweetbreads. Well, if you had never made a mousse with sweetbreads, you know, or, or a mousseline or something like that, you know, you would get him early. 
you know, you'd have your pasta made and then you'd go get him early and say, can you show me how you want me to do this? And then you do it and you wouldn't have a problem, you yeah. know, but you learned how to ask for help. Cause you're like, if I'm intimidated to make that mousse and I put it off until four thirty, and then all of a sudden you're ready to do a taster of the dish and it's not right. You know, it's going to be not a great day for yeah. you. Yeah. What, what I love from this story too, is this idea that this chef, uh, Michael Lotto, who we're getting on the show, um, in a couple of days, um, extended that trust to his team just to be like, this is what we want to do. We trust you to do it. And I think that must be a big pill to swallow to be able to put that much trust in, but it's going to be so powerful when you've, when you've gotten to that point because of just now you're giving access to all those people that are on your team. Right. Do you want to, break into that yeah and well it's kind of funny because then he and i worked together for so long closely and uh he's always been trusting with people to make the food and i'm not quite as trusting you know obviously i i am in in many cases but sometimes if there's something where we really need it and i really don't think that the person could get it right it's like i'll make it with them 20 times you know and just keep making it with because or or more so just because i'm like i'm not going to have to make this on the fly like you know we're we're gonna do this together every day until i think you could do it on your own yeah uh so in some ways you know we would both be able to train people where they would learn how to make the things but i actually think with mike they'd learn it faster because it was more of a sink or swim Mm. you know versus me and it wasn't so much about them as much as i'm just like i I gotta have this right today yeah i feel you so how long were you with Mike at, uh, at August. So restaurant I, August. So I was, so actually, uh, oddly enough, Blake and I started both at restaurant August, like three weeks from each other okay. on the same station. Okay. And we both were, that was our first, we had, we had learned how to cook basic, you know, techniques and things through school and other restaurants, but we got there and that was the first dose of like walking in where you feel like you're going to throw up, you know, <laughs> because you're just, you're like, I've got so much Anxiety, stuff to do. Nerves, yeah. I don't know if I'm going to be able to get it done. Yeah. And, uh, and then even when you do something happens, you know, where, you know, you, 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 you get your stuff done and, and then all of a sudden a purveyor walks in with a bunch of like birds with the feathers still on it. And it's like, Oh, never mind. This dish is coming off. Yeah. <laughs> start, start getting those guys, you know, but, uh, but I was there for four or five years however a year and a half i was gone living in europe so from basically i'm assuming you graduated in two years or less from um yeah two years so 2010 uh is when you were back in uh new orleans new orleans fuck i gotta get that right no i got you i got you uh and you're so you spent until 2014 really three years before opening this spot yeah so um what was going through your mind around this time like were you did you have the the ambition the the vision to open your own place at this point were you talking with drew at this point or you know uh i i think that i always thought that i would open a place and i think drew and i always thought we would open a place together you know it's just we weren't sure what it was going to be you know early on Early on, your dreams have more to do with what your skill set is at that time. Mm-hmm. So at that time, we were like, oh, well, maybe we could open a burger place. Yeah. You know, or maybe we open just a local tavern and we do, you know, good chicken wings or yeah. whatever. And then as you progress in your career, you know, not to say that one restaurant outweighs another, but you just start to think like, well, I've, I've trained in this. I kind of want to. You're adding more tools to your, you know, your utility belt, you it, know, like exactly. you can just do more. Exactly. But yeah, so I was at August for... Yeah, over, it was maybe four years or and, and a year and a half. I had moved right on the border of France and Germany and cooked there. Uh, Blake did the same thing, but like basically right after me. And then after that, 
was when Mike was going to open Mofo, okay. and uh, he asked me. You know, uh, I, I had actually was in the process of leaving August because I had been there. You know, it was I actually at that point I thought I might open my own place, and then he, he came to me and asked about Mofo, and I thought, you know. I could this it would be crazy for me to open my own place right now if I can get this experience to do this. And why was, was that experience better in, at this moment than you leaving to open your own place? Well, I think it it's maybe or maybe not would I have figured things out and made it. It was more about the fact that um it was more about the fact that if I was going to take money from people that were investing. Uh, I wanted to know that they were making the best investment they could. It might not work, but it was a good investment. Yeah. And I love this mentality too. And I don't want to put words into your mouth or thoughts into your mouth, but up to this point, you had never opened your own restaurant. Correct. You'd never opened a restaurant for anybody else. Correct. And and Mike had neither, which was great because I got to see, I got to see how him and his partners were going to figure that out. Yeah. And that's a huge lesson because running a restaurant or even running a line in a restaurant isn't the same as opening a restaurant. It's a whole new set of skills uh, and experiences that you can pick up. You can learn, watch and being a part of that. Right. Absolutely. Um, What, what were the biggest lessons you learned in opening MoFo? Well, um, or actually, no, let's put that in the back burner because I kind of feel like we skipped right over your time in Europe. Oh, um, yeah, and yeah. I mean, I think that that's really important is, is getting away, traveling, scratching that bug. What, what was driving you to do that? Well, one, I figured if I'm ever going to do it, that was the time, you know, and I really, you know, I would hear from other people that had had done that. And Mike had done it as well. And I just remember thinking to myself, you know, I kind of want to know what that's all about. You yeah, know, what, what was that time? It was 2000, uh, what, 13 when you made this trip? Might have been. Yeah, I'd lose track of the dates at there. But yeah, it was it you was about three years working at the re- uh, uh, restaurant August. Correct. And then you spent about a year and a half away. Yeah. yeah so, so I guess that's what it was. Yeah. yeah. But I yeah. And I moved right on the border of the Black Forest and Alsace. Oh, so right there in Germany and France. And but it's gorgeous out there. Oh, it's stunning. And the chef there uh, was a guy named Carl Joseph Fuchs, who is if you ever see if you want to see personified the love of cooking, that's him. You know, he, he, uh, made this gorgeous cheese and it was like every week on Wednesday, you, you go up the mountain, you get, there's this family that has these cows. They have like nine of them and make their entire living off these nine cows. That's great. You get all their milk, you bring it down, just raw milk and you would make Gruyere and Munster. And that was it. You know, so it's like you do that, you know, he would hunt and you might a get little Jägermeister action, uh, more schnapps. Oh, that's, that's right. It's different in France. Jägermeister is German. That's yeah. Right. But, but we would get, we would get to the, uh, to the people that would have the milk and it would be like four in the morning and they would just insist on two shots of schnapps. Well, a Jägermeister is a person that processes the, the killed and the, after going hunting, right? The Jägermeister is like the butcher that also will do things like force meats and stuff like that. Is there a similar thing in France? Um, yeah. Um, granted Jägermeister, the spirit was actually started by a guy named Sidney Frank. Okay. Who was, um, American. I think he's still like the largest donor to Brown university. I don't okay. know. I don't know why I know that, but he, uh, he started Jägermeister and then started, uh, gray goose. Oh, or not. interesting. I just, I've always been fascinated with, I recently learned that Jägermeister means like the person that 
processes game animals. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't sure. Sorry, I'm just geeking out. No, no. But but (laughs) I tell you what, one thing that was fascinating there is the chef would go out hunting in the middle of the night and whatever he shot would be what would be served that day. Oh, that's cool. So it was incredible because then you really do learn like the value of like the, so the organ meats and things like that are best right away Mm -hmm. versus the meat needs to hang and age a little bit, you know? So you start to learn the way, and if it was a really successful hunt, which I was part of a, which you're not allowed to shoot a gun, you know, if getting a license there to hunt is really, really difficult, but you could go on the hunt and you could help, you know, uh, bang on trees to push the, the animals towards where the people are with the guns. But I went and was part of a really successful hunt. He said it was one of, it was like they shot like six things in like an hour. And, uh, he invited all of his hunting buddies, uh, and they came and we had this feast with, you know, the kidneys and, and the livers and all that just a few hours later. And it was incredible. It's kind of a shame that we have such a, such a robust wildlife management system and we don't do these things. We take all these opportunities for granted, right? Absolutely. Um, but I'm curious, the, the, the significance of being so close to the people that were creating the products you were using, how did that influence you? I mean, one thing is it made me realize that things aren't perfect, you know, like especially when you're dealing, like I think – so often in America, we get used to products that are the exact same. We have an expectation of what, you know, of what a perfect tomato is or, yeah. or whatever. And there was interesting, you know, like his cheese, he would make Munster, which real Munster is basically the same thing as Camembert. It's just a different color because it's a different bacteria, you know, in the caves that just makes a different color and flavor. But I remember the cheese during times of the year where the cows were eating grass, it would just, you'd cut into it and it'd run all over the plate. But the exact same recipe, the exact same process, another time of year would be hard. You know, so you'd run into the bread from the baker would be a little different at certain times yeah. of the year. And Temperature you, and humidity. And, yeah. and you actually start to change the dishes based on that. Yeah. So it kind of gave the food life in a sense. That's cool, man. And I think it's just like in being okay with that and like learning to appreciate the seasonality, right? I think so, yeah. That's and cool. I mean, the foie gras was interesting too because in the U.S., the only foie gras you see is, you know, your pasteurized foie gras versus there. It's funny. It's like I had worked at August and made, you know, August was kind of known in part for their foie gras terrines and things like that. So I'd made so many and I get there and they, they, they say, so Christmas time foie gras is a really big thing in the black forest and in Alsace. And they're like, do you, do you know how to work with it? And I said, yeah, I've, I've made, you know, a lot of terrines. And then all of a sudden I see the foie there and it's an actual like, liver that's not pasteurized or anything and it was so challenging to figure it out (laughs) you know and it's it's always funny it's like i'll never forget it the first day where it's like i'm seeing a a product that i thought i knew through and through i'm seeing something for the first time i'm like oh so this is what this is in its original state i'm loving your story man Uh, but i I think there's just a lot to be pulling from the story but from kind of like a an aerial view to the significance of i think that it's important that young chefs get out and travel not only because they need to experience the world and it's kind of a byproduct of taking the time to travel, but now you have a story to tell. Now you can, you can develop this brand, this personal brand for yourself. And I think when we, when we dedicate our lives to something to travel, to, to master the, this, this craft we're investing in, like being able to, to tie a story to it, right. And being able to say that, like I've traveled Europe in itself is like, I think, how do you, how do you put a price to that? You know? Absolutely. I so, mean, uh, you gotta, you need to find your food and your, your restaurant 
needs to be inspired mm. by something because yeah. if it's not inspired, people can tell. Mm. Even if you're so skilled, they can just get this sense that it's not inspired. Mm. Uh, and for me, you know, I found my inspiration traveling and I found it uh, more in France than anything else, you know, in the, the wine, natural wine bars and bistros in Paris. You know, I was very inspired by that. But somebody else might find their inspiration doing something else in, you know, Provence or in the Black Forest or something. But And some people find their inspiration from cooking with their grandmother, you know, when they're a kid. But you need to find the inspiration somewhere, otherwise people can tell. Yeah, and you mentioned something earlier. You said, now is the time. What was, like, when is the time? Like, really paint that picture for why that was the time for you. Well, I think, you know, I think the biggest thing is don't wait until it's too late. And I just felt as if I waited longer than that, you know, here's the thing. It's not easy to just drop everything you're doing and move to Europe. No. So it's like, would I have bought a new car and had a car payment? You know, would I yeah. have bought a home, you know, start a business, you know what? Yeah. yeah. And then you wouldn't be able to go. And I just thought to myself, you know, I'm getting to the point now where I, I do need to buy a new car. Or I do, you know, someday want to buy a home or start a business or whatever. So yeah. now's the time before I take that on. I love it. So, you get your experience, you come back. Now, when, when you return, what was, did you, were you just expecting to go back to restaurant August or did he had, had he dropped this news on you that you might be opening a restaurant when you left? So I, I, I did actually go back to August and I was at August for, for a little while. And then, at, and then actually I went back to Europe to do a cookbook. Okay. Uh, Cause I had just been there and then went back uh, to help, but went back for like a month uh, traveling through France and Germany to help uh, do the food for the photography for a cookbook. And then when I had come back there, then I was really inspired at that point because I had been back home and then gone back and I'm with these incredible producers of the cookbook, like Dorothy Kalins, who was the founding editor of Savoir magazine, was the one who was in charge of the thing. And it was just uh, Roger Sherman, the one who does... Uh, in search of Israeli cuisine, the okay. movie with Michael Samanoff, yep. they were actually there, you know, and you're there and actually kind of guiding, uh, not, not guiding, you know, Dorothy speaks French and had lived there. So you're not their guide through France, but you're their guide through the sites that you actually knew and had eaten at, you know, and I think at that point is when I realized, you know, I actually do have a story to tell. These people who are very well-traveled and know this country and things like that, I can actually help show a unique story to these people. And it just made me think, like, I kind of have my own yeah, story now. But, I mean, think about the, the and, you know, they say your network is your net worth. Your, your, net, your net worth is your network. Um, and the, having even these people in your corner, like these people who are food writers who – who know how to, to market and brand and get stories out, right? Having people like this in your network, I'm sure someday might come back around. I don't know if you're like if you're volunteering your time or what, but just to be shoulder to shoulder with people who can produce media around food must be a good thing. I mean, I'm just throwing that out there. Sure, sure. Which, I mean, actually, uh, I, I ran into Dorothy a few years ago. She came by MoFo. But I think more than anything, it was that... I took my job really seriously and they even though even though Dorothy was this this huge editor I just remember she was so respectful to me because I tried really hard to do my job mm. and I just remember thinking that you know in the grand scheme of things as far as what my position is I'm not that important yeah. but I really work my butt off and try to do a good job therefore I get treated like I'm important and it just made me kind of 
think, you know, one, I was thankful for her for that, but it also just kind of made me think that, you know, you're not too small to make an impact on someone if you act as though you're not small. Exactly. Yeah. I love it, man. Awesome stuff. Um, so you come back, um, you're, you're working at the August restaurant with Michael Galato again. Um, when did he put on your radar that he had plans for you? Well, I, I had gone to him and, uh, at that point, I think I had been with my girlfriend for, uh, she actually, she was, we met doing the cookbook thing. She was, she was in Europe too. And, uh, and I had dated her maybe a year, year and a half. And I just remember thinking to myself, you know, now might be the time for me to start moving forward to open a business. Not that I would necessarily, you know, I don't know if she was interested in opening a business, but she was making a career change. What was she doing? What was her line of work? So she was actually, she was a, a, an executive assistant at the time. And then she wanted to get into, she knew she didn't want to do that for forever, and now she does insurance. Uh, okay. She works for a really big insurance company, but she knew she wanted to get to basically start a career that she could be in for a while. Gotcha. And I and it just kind of made me think that I should do the same thing. And I, you know, I went to Mike and I and I told Mike, you know, I'm I'm going to move on to something else. And then that's when he had said to me, you know, it's just a private conversation, and you know, he was like. You can't, you know, don't tell anybody, you know, because nothing's official yet, but I'm thinking about doing this. And if I did, would you be interested? And I said, I absolutely would. Yeah. And even then I left not knowing that it would happen. Um, but ultimately it did and, and it worked out. I yeah. And I think there's a lesson there um, that like to, to be successful in this industry, you, you're only as good as your team. And when you see these chefs like Michael Lotta go on to open their restaurants, um, they usually don't just go and leave and do it by themselves. They're usually taking an army with them. Right. And it's putting the time and energy into developing and forming your army before you go off to do your thing. And maybe you guys did the same exact thing. I don't know how many people came with you when you came here, uh, but you came with three partners that you met working with yep. um, Michael Galata, you yeah. know? So like, it's just so much, you can't underestimate that time of the come up and yeah. networking and, and, and building your army. Right. Yeah. Um, so what was it like when he told you this news that you're going to be helping him possibly open a restaurant? It was exciting. This the, was MoFo or um, that, that, that was MoFo. Okay. So it was exciting. You know, it was a little bit, uh, you know, obviously you think I'm a little bit nervous about it, but at the same time as exciting. And, uh, and once we got into it is when it really got exciting. You know, once we got into it, granted, it was crazy hours in the beginning. You know, it was, we were, even our pho, we had a lot of different garnishes to go in there. And of course we had like, you know, really labor intensive things. So I would get there at like 4 a.m. and I would be there until whatever time it slowed down, which could be 11 at night mm. every day, you know, but, but, you know, it worked out, you know, it was busy. And That's crazy, man. It was busy, but 4 we 4 a.m. to 11 at night. It was, it was, and I, I wouldn't be able to do that now, but no. I mean, I remember, I remember a couple nights where I slept in my car uh, during Mardi Gras because traffic was bad enough to where I would only go home to basically shower and take, get a couple of hours of sleep. Yeah. Why well, lose that time driving, right? Yes. Yeah, so I would just <laughs> sleep in my car, you know, but, so uh, that's 18 hour days. It was, it was crazy for a while. And to be fair, it's like Mike was working those kind of hours too, you yeah. know, so everybody was working really hard, but, yeah. but you see the hard work pay off, you know, that pace ended up being really successful. Uh, and then Blake was the other sous chef there. It was Blake and me were the sous chefs and drew ultimately became the GM of MoFo. Okay. And then, um, and then 
Maypop came along, uh, Blake actually left to go move to San Francisco and work at Saison, uh, which was great. San Francisco. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Who was the behind the restaurant? Remind me. Uh, Josh Skeens. That's right. Um, and that was, you know, of course, Michelin three star. And I think it was like, it's like 32 or something on the Pellegrino list yeah. in the world. Uh, but a lot of the influences and things he learned there we use here now. Yeah. Uh, but then I stayed uh, and opened Maypop with Mike. And that was a great experience as well to get to open another place yeah. and utilize, you know, the mistakes that we had made in the beginning that we said, well, we're not going to make that mistake again. You actually get to put it into practice. And it was a lot smoother the second time. Yeah. And now you have these two openings under your belt before going on to open your own thing. Were you ever, um, were you a partner in any of Michael's restaurants at any time? I I was not. um, I was not a partner. Um, However. Did he have partners? He did. He had, uh, he had two partners and then they essentially had a fourth partner that was a group of investors that basically made up the fourth partner. Okay. So his other, so the group of uh, the fourth partner, which was a group of individuals, uh, Two other partners were they um, in the business? Were they? Did they bring certain skill sets as assets to the table? So, um, so basically, uh, two of the two of the partners. One was his brother, okay, and and the other was a captain at August, uh, who was uh, the front of house aspect. Exactly, gotcha. and they and they were the partners. And you know, without I'm sure he can get into the to what he wants to talk about about yeah. the structure of his yeah. business. But I will say it was two partners that were very involved as well as Mike. Gotcha. Uh, so I got to work with those. So what did you learn about business and general partnerships, the opening restaurants? I mean, this is, this was your, you know, your, your graduate school, right? Like sure. what were you learning from how they were doing things very well, very successfully? What were the biggest lessons you learned? Well, it was cool. Cause I get to learn it from the ground up again. Yeah. It was kind of like, it was kind of like being at August where it was a real sort of sink or swim, just do it. Mm-hmm. So it was like nobody in the beginning, no one now they knew how to run a restaurant, you know, as far as because they had all been managers at restaurants. You know, Mike had been the chef of a restaurant and his brother had been a GM at, at the same restaurant. So they knew that. But as far as like setting things up and I will say they were very transparent to me, you know, if they were like, well, looks like our accounting was set up wrong. So we got to change this. You know, I'm, I'm making up examples, but it'd be yeah. something like that. And, and you'd say, well, what happened? And he'd, and he'd tell you what happened. You're like, okay, put that in the uh, the little memory bank not to make that mistake. Exactly, so, right? So, and then there were plenty of things where, where I would just say, okay, I'm going to take this on. And, you know, there would be plenty of things where no one had done it. And I was like, well, I'll just take this on. And they're like, okay, cool. And that was it. So I would yeah. be some things. I would be the first one figuring out how to do it because I was just like, I'll do it. Yeah. You know, so it was cool. Did you ever have the conversation or did you and your partners ever have the conversation that you, did you ever try to open a restaurant underneath that umbrella or did you, was it important that you guys broke off and did your own thing? Um, you know, my thing was, is I, I never would have been opposed to being partners with somebody um, if we needed it, but I never wanted to go. I never wanted to find a partner and then open a business. I wanted to find what I wanted to open and then make the decision on whether or not we wanted a partner. Okay. And, uh, you know, I'm sure we'll get into the story of St. Germain, but as it turned yeah, out, yeah. we didn't need a partner. Okay. Interesting. So, um, what, as far as opening restaurants, what were the biggest lessons you learned that if you, if you don't think you knew these things, you would have probably hit some big hiccups in opening St. Germain. Well, I mean, as far as the the cooking and the running the kitchen and things like that, I think I learned about as much as I needed to learn within the first few years of MoFo. Uh, but it, then it was after that where 
I actually started working a lot with uh, this guy named Jeff Bybee, who was one of Mike's partners, who did all of their most of their office work and financials and things like that. And he was really kind about showing me a lot of things. Uh, and I, and I think, I think once I started to really see how things were set up is when I started to think to myself, like, okay, you know, we could, we can make this happen. How did, like, are you able to share like how they set that? Like you're talking about like backup house organization, inventory, uh, what, what kind of things are you talking about? Well, in terms of like, like logistically, how do you go about paying your taxes? Okay. You know, and when I say logistically, I, you know, obviously they have a CPA, we have a CPA, Yeah. but it's like, what do you do? What are the steps in order to pay your taxes? It's like, well, you know, obviously there's the things you need in order to actually be able to pay your taxes, but then it's okay. We've got our sales tracked in this manner. You know, we, we give these inputs to the CPA who then does it, you know, we have the accounting system set up in this way. Uh, so things like that. Um, you know, I mean, honestly, even when we were open in this restaurant, I remember thinking to myself, well, I have investors now that want to give me money, but like, what do I physically do? With the money? Yeah. And I, where does it go? Where does it live? I I remember sitting at the bank and, uh, I've got investors on the phone and they're like, well, just let me know where to transfer this money. And I remember calling Jeff Bybee and saying like, Hey, uh, quick question. I got people that are trying to give me the money I need to open my restaurant. I'm at the bank. Do I need to open a certain type of bank account? Do I need to do? And I just remember he told me a few things. I'm like, okay. And then, you know, 15 minutes later, we had the money in our account to open the so restaurant. So did you need an EIN number to open a, a, a business checking account? I know some places require that. We we didn't, uh, but I mean, we had it. I mean, that was the other thing. And I will say this is really good advice is those guys had a lawyer who's also now our lawyer. But I, I was think, curious about that. You know, which which I'll say, you know, it's like things like legal Zoom are great. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. But having a good lawyer yeah. for your contracts, for even setting up your LLC, like, because here's the thing. It's like a lot of restaurants are a partnership. Like, uh, you know, most are probably partnerships. Mm-hmm. We're an S Corp, uh, you know, which I would have had no idea the difference if we wouldn't have had, you know, in the way we wanted to set things up. We're set up in a really unique way. And so it, you are an S Corp. We're an S Corp. So why did you choose an S Corp instead of, say, like an LLC? Well, uh, so, well, uh, well, we do have an LLC, but it's, it's, it's a, it's an S corp instead of a partnership. Okay. But, uh, but it had to do, it had to do with how we wanted to. So if you're an S corp, you can actually fill out a W2 and be an employee of your own company. Okay. So we actually drew Blake and me are employees of our company. Um, we're not just owners. Uh, and it just has to do with tax benefits and the way that we pay. Uh, it, it was actually a protection for our investors. So basically what happens is we have an agreed upon salary that the three of us get up to. Yeah. Uh, if the money's not there, then we don't get it. But we get up to that. And then any amount of money that we make after that uh, legally has to be distributed based off our percentages of ownership. So it protects the investors that we have to where anything beyond my salary, I can't just all of a sudden say this money's mine. Yeah. If I take a dollar, then, you know, whatever, 1% goes to this investor and 1% goes the other. So it, it just worked out for the way we're set Interesting. up. Interesting. Thank you for getting into that. Um, one thing we didn't talk about before we move on to just talking about you guys opening St. Germain, uh, I know that when you opened MoFo and May, and May was it Maypop? Maypop, right? yep. Um, this was like your first lead, like you were transitioning into a leadership role where you were running those restaurants. What did you learn about yourself and leadership and how to lead others during this time? 
Well, I mean, I think the biggest thing was is I'm a pretty nice guy, um, but I have, you know, but I'm pretty serious about standards. Mm. Um, and I got a, a lot of good advice about how to manage as a nice guy. How do you do that? Uh, I say nice guy. It could be nice gal. Yeah. But, 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 uh, but the thing is, is one piece of advice that somebody gave me is they're like, if anything bothers you ever, just say it mm. because if you don't say something, then what happens is you can only be nice for so long and eventually you might snap on something that's really not that big of a deal, but all these little things bother you. Or sometimes also too, if you're a nice person and you really have to get on to somebody, if they're not used to you getting on to them, it can be like, even if you're not mean, it could yeah. be like, if I, I remember if I would criticize somebody, it, it would be over, you know, and I'm not even talking yelling. I'm just saying like a stern, like, Hey, this isn't going to work. Like you're yeah. not going to be able to work here. If, if this continues like our, you know, wilted or like exactly what you got. Right? They're like upset yeah. for days, oh, yeah. you know, cause they're like, oh, I can't believe, you know, it's like a really, you know, disappointed tray, you know, cause you never get on to people. Yeah. So it's like somebody gave me the, the advice. They're like, if something bothers you, just say it. So it's like, now I eventually got to where it's like every time something bothered me, I'd say it might not even be that negative. It might be, you know, if some, Somebody comes up and they use the the sugar caddy that I use to season, you know, something with, and they come and take a spoonful of the sugar for their coffee. It's like, you know, it, it's not a big deal. It's not like I'm going to yell at somebody for that, but I'm like, you know, now I might have to fill up that sugar caddy again before the night's over, and I wouldn't have before. So I just say like, hey, just FYI, I'm not saying it's that big of a deal, but it is kind of annoying if I have to refill this because you got the sugar for your coffee, and they're like, oh, no problem, chef. Sorry about that, and it's over. Yeah. Versus if I let just sharing your perspective simply. Yeah, but if I let little things like that go, and then all of a sudden they do make a mistake, maybe all those little things that bothered me would then get put in and I'm and I'm yelling at somebody for yeah. for a mistake that really wasn't that big of a deal. Yeah. And then you it got a breaking point, right? And you just let it all out. Oh, and it got so easy. And I remember towards the end of my time with that restaurant group, I kind of became like a director of operations type role. Uh, so I would do, you know, if like the chef de cuisine at one restaurant wanted to let somebody go, you know, they would call me and I'd come over and help. Not that I enjoy that, not that they would, but I just remember it's like uh, not a chef, de, it could be a sous chef or whatever, yeah. but if somebody had to criticize somebody, you get them in the room and before before the conversation, the people would have all these things they want to say, but then you get there and it's really difficult. Like confrontation, it's funny. People think that like blowing up in a kitchen is is hard. You know, it's tough. It's like, no, it's not. Looking someone in the eye and very matter-of-factly and very Calmly, seriously yeah. giving them criticism yeah. is extremely difficult. It takes a lot of strength to look somebody yeah. in the eye and say, I don't like what you're doing and I want you to change it. So it's like that nitpicking all of a sudden made it really easy. And if you had to let somebody go and they're like, why are you doing it? It would be very difficult if you weren't used to giving people criticism and you'd look them in the eye and you'd say, it's nothing personal, but here are the reasons why. And I'm sorry, that's the decision. Yeah, no, great advice. I'm happy that we went there. Any other uh, lessons on leadership and how to manage people before we move on to like you guys finally coming together uh, to execute your plan for St. Germain? I mean, I think, I think more than anything, you, you got to be respectful because your message can be as tough as you want it to be. Like you can give somebody harsh criticism on the mistakes that they made as long as you're always within that realm of professional and respectful. Mm. Because when you get outside of that, 
people don't take your message seriously anymore. Yeah. You know, or they think, well, they're maybe they're just a jerk to me or maybe they're just mean. So I've been lucky. I've always had chefs that treated me with respect, which which it does. It's it's hard to get criticism from people that that respect you and you respect them. But at the same time, you always know it's coming from a good place. Yeah. So what's the secret to getting that respect? Well, one, one, it kind of goes back to telling them what's on your mind very honestly yep. and very clearly. You know, that's another thing. Some people aren't great communicators. And, you know, you, you send somebody to get something, you're like, hey, I need you to get me, you know, X, Y, or Z. And they come back with something and you're like, that's not what I told you to get. <laughs> it's like, well, you got to look in the mirror and say, well, what were my, were my exact words? Yeah. And you're like, well, I could see how that would be confusing. And then, you know, you, you, the next time you do it better or you go to that person, you're like, hey, I'm sorry I got upset. I thought about it and realized I could have been a little bit more clear. Yeah. And oh, so like, so what I'm hearing from you is communicating clearly and owning when you do something wrong and being able to swallow that pill publicly and saying, I was wrong, you were right, is another way, a great way to get respect. Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, and there are times where, especially if you're like expediting, you know, there would be times where I know sometimes whoever's expediting makes a mistake, you know, but sometimes if the, you know, if the line cook would snap back or have an attitude or something like that, it's like that would be when I would take a take a moment and I'd say, hey, I just want you to know that, you know, I may have made a mistake when I read the call, but guess what? If you make a mistake, I treat it with professionalism and I expect the same respect from you. And it's like you can just calm anything down with just communication. Yeah. All right. So you're ready to talk about and say, Jermaine. Oh, yeah. Okay, awesome. So take us to the point where you, Drew, and Blake come together and you're like, it's go time. So at this point, Drew had left uh, the MoFo group uh, and was working at different places, mainly just to... So he was the GM at MoFo and he was working at other places where he all of a sudden had time to, you know, free time to start figuring out what we wanted to do. Blake had just come back from San Francisco uh, or actually he had come back from Utah because one of the people he worked with under at Saison invited Blake to open a restaurant with him in uh, Salt Lake City. Okay. So Blake had gone to Salt Lake City and then was back. So the three of us were here and then we just got a real estate agent one day and, uh, the re- and we told them kind of the com- – and the inspiration for the place was – there are places in Paris I love like Septime, uh, you know, some of these other uh, – Chateaubriand and a lot of them would have wine bars next door or across the street you know they'd have these casual affordable tasting menu restaurants and they'd have a natural wine bar next door and I really liked the sort of way that they would feed off each other yeah. and I, and were, I the, were those businesses owned by the same person? They, they were okay so similar identity they would you know if you couldn't get a reservation doing the tasting menu you'd go to the wine bar and get some snacks and drink some wine or you'd go there early and do that and then go to dinner and i thought what if we could find a duplex and do the same thing inside the same building uh but that's kind of a tall order for real estate but we got a agent and at this point we had no investors we had nothing i had i had ten thousand dollars in my bank account that i had saved up that was it and the real estate agent uh you know took took uh, Drew and Blake out. They didn't find anything. And then I went the next time. And I still remember thinking at the time, you know, I don't know if it's too early for us to be looking. And we found this building. And I remember coming inside. And I was just getting this weird vibe like it was it. And it looked totally different than this. And I remember we were standing on the balcony upstairs. uh, And Drew kind of looked at me. And he's like, am I crazy? Or is this the building? And I said, 
I think the same thing. Yeah. And, uh, and then we just started rolling. I love it, man. So what, what was it about your business partners that you think that you were thinking to yourself, okay, wait, I need to go into business with these guys because I'm not strong with this. And so-and-so is strong with that. Like what, what, why were you so conf- confident in this partnership? Well, part of it for me was I wanted people where we could trust each other to not have to micromanage each other. So it's like on the front of the house side, obviously, I trust Drew because he's got experience as a GM and things like that. He also takes criticism really well. I mean, that's that's the one thing about the three of us is you have to be able to take criticism. And that was I mean, that was one thing Mike was great about. We would we would annihilate our food. You know, we would I'm not saying everything was perfect, but we were back there just destroying our dishes <laughs> saying well this component doesn't need to be here this sucks this sucks like not stuff we were serving but i'm yeah. saying before it would go out there so we do the same thing with our business plan here if with the service i'm like hey drew you know i really think that this was kind of clunky or whatever and he's like okay i can see where you're coming from yeah you know or he'd be like yeah i don't think people were loving this particular dish you need to change it i'm like oh wow and okay i'm gonna change it tomorrow yeah you know and 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 we would have that but i think the biggest thing was is i trusted blake to do like if Blake and I divide up components of a dish or dishes, even if what he comes up with is different than what I would have come up with, I know it's going to be just as good. Mm. And with Drew, uh, Drew and I have a tendency to do more of the business stuff together where if, if I tell Drew like, Hey, I don't have time to do this. I just need you to call the lawyer and y'all figure it out. I trust Drew to do it and he does it, you know? And, uh, so that helps where yeah. you, where you don't send somebody to do a task, but then you're going to have to check on it later. And Drew's focus has always been in front of house, right? Correct. So he's getting all, I mean, he was managing the August, uh, front of house, right? Or well, work after captain. Is that what it was? Well, uh, he was at Bayona and that's he, right. And yeah. Susan and, Spicer. Yeah. And then he went to MoFo as a server and then worked his way up and became the GM. Yeah. And we're not here. We're not talking about Drew's story right now, but I was able to talk to Drew a little bit before this recording and just the social awareness or the, the, not the social, well, social awareness in, um, personal awareness that like he is willing to admit that he's not the best at some of the things like he's like, we, we, I was going to be the, the wine guy, but then we hired this person and they were better at me than the natural wine. So they took over that. And then, and then there's this, another cocktail lady. She's better at that. So like, it's like now I just, you know, but I think being able to know where people exceed you in certain things and, and having the, and I don't even know the right word, but the self-awareness to know that it's okay if I step back because this is going to make us stronger. Right? Exactly. Um, I think that's a really great element that he has. And I picked up on just instantly. Uh, do you want to reflect on that? Yeah, I know. I mean, what you're saying, it's like, you know, in part, it's like we're our harshest critics, yeah. you know? So it's like, we have no problem saying this person's better at this than us, you know? So, so it's perfect. Cause yeah. I, you know, Drew could have been the wine person, but at the same time, our wine program is infinitely better with who runs it. Yeah. Uh, so, and Drew's not afraid to admit that. And neither am I. I love it. You already got into like the business entity. You guys decided to set up as an S court. You, you spelled out why. Um, what about partnership agreements that did you learn about partnership agreements and things we should do with three partners? Yes. Uh, and this, this scenario was a little bit unique. So we had $10,000 yeah. and we found the space, uh, but, but the building was for sale and we really wanted to buy the building. Well, obviously it's very difficult to buy a building with $10,000. So we started thinking to ourselves, well, how can we make this work? So we actually found some investors that were interested in buying real estate, but weren't interested in being in the restaurant business. Okay. So we basically said to them, what if you buy, what if you buy this building 
and we agree on what we would then buy the building from you for. And we basically will have a lease purchase with you, you know, where we'll pay X amount of money per month. And then when the, when it's paid off, then the building's ours. So you found an owner, then you set up a lease to own situation. Yep. And, gotcha. and of course they were protected because if the restaurant went out of business, then they would still, they have, still the have building. The yeah. uh, but they also got extra benefit because then we were able to find investors and normally investors, if you invest in a restaurant, I mean, you may essentially, you may end up just being investing in a restaurant that breaks even and you don't make any money. Mm-hmm. But with our investors, we we're like worst case scenario. If we just break even and we're in business, for six years, we will own that real estate, in which case you will own a percentage of that real estate. So there is, there is a sort of protection there. So more people were willing to put up the money. Okay. Uh, and then we took that money and did the work ourselves here. So we were really able to stretch it. So the people that actually own the building had a much more valuable building. Uh, so everybody kind of won in the scenario. Nice. What advice do you have for somebody who's listening to this and like the light bulbs are just going off? They're like, I could pull this off. Like, what do we need to notice to take this approach? Well, I mean, one, one is you just need to start talking to people and you need to start asking. Um, the other thing is, is people are going to ask you to do your homework and you need to be ready to do your homework. Mm. You know, it's, we, we had a lawyer lined up, you know, where we were ready to go forward with all of these agreements and we knew what we needed. So what's, give me an example of what your homework done looks like. Well, you said, already said you had a lawyer. You have these agreements written up. You, what else? Well, one, you, need to, you, you really need to look at a lot of business plans where you know how to write up your business plan. And that's the other thing. It's like our, our investors, it's like we still had to have a plan that said, you know, the neighborhood we're in, we had all the demographics listed, you know, as far as who works in what industry. You know, this particular neighborhood has a lot of people that work in the service industry, which we were doing a restaurant that we thought would lend Appeal itself well to, to that. Yeah. You know. Uh, Is that your target market? People who work? in the service industry? Uh, not necessarily, but it was, it was helpful. Um, you know, another thing is, is we're, we have a building that doesn't have a parking lot. Mm-hmm. Well, this neighborhood had the highest percentage of people who ride their bikes, mm. you know, according to the census that we found. So and we're street like, parking. Yeah. Plenty of street parking, right? Yeah, exactly. So, which is, reminds me, the street parking is fine, right? Yeah, it's no never problem. asked. Okay, no cool. Problem. No we problem. should be all set then. Yeah. I should I don't have to hurry up the, the rest of the interview. Um, so, uh, Okay, so you're dropping a lot of good stuff. You're painting that picture of what preparedness looks like. Where did you go to learn about this stuff? Because I'm, I'm assuming they, they, there might be a little bit of business development, business planning in your education. But did you guys have a resource or a tool you went to to learn about how to be prepared with a business plan? I think more than anything is just asking questions. Yeah. You know, it's like anytime you come across somebody, I mean, shoot, I, I was lucky. I got to travel a lot with Mike and we would go do these events and there would be chefs that would open their own businesses. And it's like every chef I talked to, if there was something unique about their business that I was really curious about, you know, I would just ask. You should have brought a microphone with you, man. You could have had a podcast. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. But I would just ask, you know, I would just ask and it's shocking. You know, some people are so helpful where they're like, you know what? Like I, I actually have, I still have my original business plan yeah. or I still have this. I'll send it to my you. My opening checklist or things like that. And that's something I'm trying to be better about is asking my guests like, oh, like, can you share that? Because it's, it's amazing how willing people are to, that, that for some reason. And I don't know why I thought this getting started. My biggest fear was that people like I was going to show up like, Hey, can you tell me like all of your life lessons and secrets? They're going to be like, get the hell out of here, kid. I'm trying to run a business. Like I don't want to give away my secrets, but it's amazing. People are so 
generous with it, you True. know, and yeah. all you got to do, like you say, is ask and you'll be surprised what you can get. Absolutely. Um, reflecting back, we're two years into St. Germain now, uh, reflecting back over that first year, the first, you know, three months, anything you would have done differently, any lessons you learned the hard way that you can help our listeners prevent? Well, well, one, I'd say this, uh, you know, some people knock on projections. Uh, I would say this projections are terrible if you're using them to figure out how well you're going to do. They're incredible if you're trying to figure out how hard it's going to be for you to go out of business Mm. or how easy it's going to be for you to go out of business. So when we finally, so we did all the work ourselves and we put literally. How long did that take? So we only had six months to do it um, because we needed to be reopened in order to keep all the things that this 130 year old building are grandfathered into. Okay. Um, so, so we rushed, uh, and we needed to keep all our zoning for the liquor license and all that. Uh, so we rushed and we got it done. But the thing was, is we had raised, we had raised about a hundred thousand dollars. Okay. Uh, and it was gone. Is that including your 10, your 10,000? Uh, no. Okay. No, that's not including my 10,000 and that's not including like things like my parents would be here and, uh, you know, who knows how to get some pizza. Well, (laughs) well that, or who knows how many times I'd be like, you know, I'd ask, you know, if my parents were here visiting, my dad's an engineer. So I'd be like, Hey, can you, can you change this pipe on this? And you know, he'd go to Lowe's if he needed something, just buy the pipes and do it. So it's like, I'm sure. And Drew's parents and, and Blake's as well. So, uh, I'm sure there's a village, right? Yeah, it does. It does. But I mean, really it was the three of us doing so much, like putting up the ceiling and things like that. The floor doesn't match because I wasn't going to rip up the entire floor to redo it. I I think it's charming, man. And there's a story behind all this shit, you know, like it's, it's so charming, but, um, I'm sorry. What was the original point we I were on? I don't even know. I think um, we we're talking about how you're getting the money. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Okay, yes. So, and this is really important, actually. Uh, so we did our projections, and it was really important to me to set up a business that was going to be really hard to sink. Mm. It might not make a lot of money in the beginning, but it was going to be really hard to sink. So we spent all of our money, not foolishly. I mean, we probably did two hundred thousand dollars worth of renovations with what ended up being $80,000 because, you know, 20 got used for, you know, different things. Uh, but, but we were out of money. We opened, we had six, I think we had $6,000 in the bank account when we opened. Uh, and we probably owed the lumber company eight grand. So we essentially had no money. Um, so basically we needed the business to be here immediately in order for us to make payroll in order for us to do anything. Um, and fortunately for us, we had this place designed to where the overhead was very, very small. Uh, but the potential, you know, to make money per customer was very, very good. And people came and, and it was a situation where we were able to kind of manage our labor. We, we managed it poorly in the beginning. Uh, we're much better about it now. I think we also undersold as far as prices and things like that. We made things a lot cheaper in the beginning because we were afraid that... You just want to get people in to taste it and try it. Exactly. But at the same time, we still had it set up in a way to where we were never going to be more than like two or $3,000 in the hole. Mm. And I was like, you know, if we have a bad weekend and we're two or $3,000 in the hole... But we have a good weekend. The next weekend, we can rebound. For- so, what, what, sorry, did I cut you short? Well, no, I was just going to say, or a bigger restaurant, if they're fifty or sixty thousand dollars in the hole, you know, then you, it's hard to yeah. get that. So, like, I guess what I'm trying to understand fully is like, what were the specific things you did to keep it 
sync proof and it sounds like one you're controlling your your prime costs and i'm guessing the big one was your labor expenses because the three of you being owners working here full time i'm I'm guessing that played into it what else um so another thing is like menu design so the way it works is saint germain is set up where you know we do the tasting menu in the dining room but the bar only has like three or four bar dishes at a given time and it's things that i can make ahead of time so it'll be like uh, you know we'll do this chicken liver pate you know we do this really pretty terrine and we basically have one person who's able to help us with the dining room stuff if we need it but can pick up all the bar food themselves so the thing is is there's plenty of people where they're like you know why don't you do you know a bigger menu in the bar you know Oh, I think somebody's about to walk in here. Yeah, it's part of it. Yeah. Come, come on, on in. Come on, no, Andrew. man, you're, you're welcome. Right. Just go ahead and go through. Sorry. <laughs> uh, I meant to unlock the front door for him. <laughs> it's uh, all good. But uh, We're but, in a restaurant. These yeah, things happen. True. <laughs> uh, but anyway, you know, he can pick up all the dishes for the bar himself. So even if we end up doing two, $3,000 in bar sales, we just have one person doing the food for the whole thing. Mm. You know, so we're able to really limit labor in that way. We don't. We don't have any salaried people here. Uh, however, all of our front of the house people do extremely well because the tips are really great. You know, but we had it set to where we're like, man, if it's two people splitting all the tips and it's like, you know, you figure if the bar's busy, you get tips there. But even the dining room, you know, if we do 18, 20 people, you know, it's a $200 ticket average. So right now I'm up to seven people working here in a night. And is that, are we accurate? Um, I would say on a Friday or Saturday, there's probably two Three, four, five, six. Yeah, about seven. That's pretty awesome. For the whole place. And I was counting the, the dishwasher if you yeah. guys have one. Yeah, that's so, it. Yeah. That's the whole thing. So, um, man, that's that's awesome. Um, I know earlier part of your vision for the space was having like that that business within a business that's separate, kind of like the bar, the wine program, right? So are we, we're sitting in the dining room right now. Correct. And what, what, how do you set up your dining room? Is it, is it, uh, is it pre like, take me through. So, so you can actually see the current menu we're doing right now, which everything's written really simply, but there's, you know, which is important for us to five courses. Yep. Five courses, but then we'll do sort of two amuse courses. Uh, and then we'll do a cocktail course. Okay. Uh, but, uh, but basically nobody orders anything. You sit down, you, now we don't sell tickets. You know, we just, that was my next question. Yeah. We just do reservations. Uh, would you consider tickets? I would. It's just the challenge there for me was, well, two things. One, uh, we don't really do allergies. Okay. Uh, unless it's just something we can naturally do. Okay. Uh, so it be, just because we have everything so streamlined labor wise that if somebody can't have a particular dish, we can accommodate if it's just leaving something off of that dish or something, but we don't have the manpower. Like there is no extra person to branch off and yeah. do a separate dish. It's not like at a normal restaurant where it's like, okay, this person, pasta person, you're making a vegetarian pasta for them. Yeah, get you know, get the vegetarian or the the uh, allergy cutting board out. Like, yeah, it's not that situation. Yeah, yeah, you know. So if it's something we can accommodate, of course, if they're allergic to mint and all we got to yeah. do is leave it off, yeah. you know, we'll do it. Um, but anyway, it's like, yeah, we just, we, everybody comes in, it's prefix, you don't order, you don't get any choice. Like if somebody doesn't, if somebody's like, oh, I don't eat blood sausage, it's like, well, you paid for it, so we'll put it in front of you if you want to try it, cool. If you don't, that's okay. And yeah. at first we thought that was going to be a problem, but it's like, I mean, you can look at the menu now, it's like I just serve sweetbreads to whatever, 300 people or yeah. whatever, and no one said anything. So how does a prefab menu help keep your control, your cost in control? Well, it definitely helps creatively because uh, 
we sometimes want to use really special ingredients, but every dish can't be, I mean, use really good stuff, but it's like you can offset the cost. So we might get live Norwegian king crab or one thing, excuse me, one thing we'll do is we'll bring in live fish so we can do EKG may butchering and you get this really special texture and then we can dry age the fish because the shelf life is 25 days mm-hmm. instead of five. So we can dry age it and you can get this really meaty fish, but things like that are extremely expensive, but we still want our tasting menu to be affordable. Mm. So what we can do is maybe we do, uh, you know, maybe we do some sort of a gnocchi dish with preserved tomato or something like that and some herbs from the garden, which is still delicious and special, but it doesn't cost us that much to offset the fact that your fish is like $80 a pound. Okay. So your team, is your team split up between these two spaces? Do you have, you have a bartender who's also a server and then a second server so we have a captain who runs the dining room by herself but okay. drew helps her okay and then we have a bartender who will handle the bar by herself and then we have a sommelier uh who can kind of bounce between the two places Got you. so one thing i love about your space so that we're sitting in the dining room right now and you've treated it like a separate business in the sense that you close off this space from everything else why right. what what's the significance in that if we're thinking about, about taking this similar approach so the importance there was we I mean, now it's easy because most of the people that come in here kind of have an idea of what we are. But in the beginning, it was really difficult for somebody sitting at the bar to not understand why they can't order that lobster dish. You know, they're like, well, those people in the dining room just right there are getting this lobster dish. I don't want the whole tasting menu. Can I just get that one dish? Which, uh, I mean, the economics of how we cook would just never work. Yeah. How do you explain that to a customer when we're not supposed to ever tell them no? Well, I mean, I, before, you know, I'd kind of just try to make something up and now I just tell them now I'll just be like, okay, well, the way we pick up lobster dishes is you order your, you know, when that course is fired, we take a live lobster, we, you know, humanely, you know, humanely dispatch this lobster and then we don't blanch it. We, we actually take out the meat without blanching it. So there's no chew to it at all, but it takes a while to scrape that lobster out. Yeah. I'm like, so that basically means it's like 17 minute fire on a lobster dish, which we get four portions out. So I'm like, that means we can only make four at a time. So we seat four people for per hour. And I'm <laughs> yeah. like, it just physically, the only way I could get you that dish would be if I, A, wasted part of a lobster or B, I lower my standards and blanch the lobster, you know, for 30 seconds. And, and it's not, you can still do great lobster that way, but. You know, when we grill it over the charcoal, when you get it and there's zero chew, it's like that's, I mean, we're a pizza place that has a high-end tasting menu. It's like we need elements like that to make us unique. So, I mean, I think there's a lesson in this in just the power of transparency, the power of just, it's like, it's, it's, I mean, have you sold dinners because you go through, now this is a selling opportunity. Like, listen, like, it looks good, doesn't it? come back next week we'll save you know we'll like we'll reserve a table for you you know is it is that usually what ends up happening have people just not accepted your answer well they're actually a lot of people then become regulars at the a lot of people that are regulars at the bar end up eating in the dining room often yeah because it's right under their nose they're yeah. like okay i gotta be a part of this and i mean not that we and obviously covid changes everything yeah. but but before you know reservations we'd be booked up for months so it was great because they'd be at the bar and they'd hear drew 
would answer the phone and somebody would want to cancel a reservation for like two weeks, you know, later and Drew would be like, okay, thank you. I'll, I'll get that in. And then someone at the bar would be like, did I hear y'all just had an opening in two (laughs) weeks? I'll take it. You know, I love it. Has there been anything we haven't discussed up to this point? Uh, anything, any ways you guys have evolved that you think my listeners could benefit from? Now's the time to get it out. Well, I'm glad we touched on opening where you use your projections. Basically, you project the restaurant the worst it could possibly be in yeah. your mind. And yeah. if you can stay in business based off those numbers, then you probably have a good concept. Great advice. Uh, so that was important. But then the other is just don't be afraid. Don't be afraid to make like we don't make a lot of money, but we insist on making enough money to where we get paid a livable wage, our staff gets paid, and and we stay in business. Okay. What's the secret to doing that? And I think this might have something to do with putting yourself on payroll. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, one thing is, is like our tasting menu has to be a certain amount. You know, it's like when we first started, I think our tasting menu was like $65 or something like that. And that was great. You know, we ran the right That's five courses. Yeah, yeah. And we ran the right food costs and everything. But then we started, you know, going up and then wine pairings were like, well, maybe people will pay $30 for wine pairings. And then people were that they were interested in getting. So then it's like, okay, well maybe we have an entry level wine pairing, but then we also have a wine pairing that's like $70 for like better wines. If you want that, you know, so we just found ways uh, to make money. Or another thing is, is there's a lot of products we can bring in. This here's really good advice actually. Uh, so like live Norwegian King crab was something we would do for a while where we would literally go to like the FedEx at four in the morning <laughs> and this package would arrive and we would have to open it immediately and get the crabs out while they're still alive into a cooler to get them here and still be alive. Okay. Well, this is a really high-end product, and most king crab around here, you're getting uh, Alaskan king crab that's probably already blanched and comes. It's still a great product, but this was unique, okay. you know, where it was, like, super fresh. And, you know, we, we, would, we would get this in, and we'd look, and we'd be like, all right, well, in order to make our money off this – we need to sell like a little two or three inch piece for like $35. And we're just like, well, cool. We're going to charge $35 for this. Yeah. I, I think it goes back to what you were saying before with starting with the projection, knowing what you need, right? And then making that yeah, just the thing that you were like, it, like you just, you get there no matter what. Yeah. That's what we need. And, and, and see if people order it. If yeah. they didn't, if they don't, then discount it in some way and don't get it again. But people would order it like crazy. Okay. You know, but I mean, we offset it. We have inexpensive things at the bar. You know, it's like we never wanted to be an expensive restaurant, but at the same time, we wanted to be a place where if you actually wanted to get like a five Kobe, we had it available and you yeah. could order it. Yeah. This is awesome. Man. I've loved this conversation. Uh, thank you so much. Um, what's, I'm curious, what's the future look like? Um, and I've, this is something that's come up a lot in the past where people will come on, open a restaurant with three partners. And at first it's rough because you're splitting that profit with three people, but you know, together we're stronger together. We can build, we can, you know, cover this restaurant, build up the people in the front of house that who like, you know, Drew can focus on the front of house building those people up. You can focus on the people you have back of house and together we're stronger and we can put this thing in kind of not like autopilot, but you know, we can get this thing moving without us, which will free us up to divide and maybe go start another project. So it's, it's an initial, it's an initial hit because you're, you're spreading what little you have amongst three people, but together you can go so much further is the idea. Go faster alone, but go further together. Yeah. I mean, for us, the future is just figuring out how to run this place even better. I mean, honestly, it's like every month 
has been, I mean, even as crazy as it sounds, even this month was, we made, we did more revenue in June this year than we did last year, even with every COVID thing and with the distancing, because we figured out how to be more efficient. We figured out, even though we weren't even allowing the full amount of people to come in, we just have it dialed out in the times that we see people and the spacing. So it's like, figuring that out. Uh, but also too, I mean, for us, we plan on opening another restaurant, but we're just waiting for, we're waiting for the right time. You know, we want to see how things go. Yeah. Awesome stuff. I've loved this conversation. Uh, the mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. So how have you transformed in the past two years as an owner? Well, I would say, I mean, one thing is we definitely are able to really, in the same way that I told you how we dissect dishes, we dissect our business now. You know, it's like, where are we hemorrhaging money? You know, what's something that we're paying somebody to do that we can do ourselves? Uh, So I would say on the financial side, that's important. But now I'll be honest too, you know, it's like we're looking at the diversity of our restaurant and things like that. And it's like, that's something that's important to us as well. You know, we look and we're like, okay, you know, underrepresented, uh, you know, people that are under underrepresented in any way, you know, it's like, how can we give greater diversity here? Mm. You know, how can we bring different viewpoints and things like that? So, I mean, honestly, uh, that's something we've really been looking in the mirror about, uh, recently and something we're working on. Awesome. I love this. Great stuff. One more quick break to thank our sponsors and we'll be right back. What up unstoppable. So I want to use this time to let you know about restaurant unstoppable network. My vision for restaurant unstoppable network is to basically pull together as many of the hand selected past guests I've had, uh, to come join us live in this network where I'm helping this generation's most successful restaurateurs connect with the next generation of leaders. And the idea is we're going to use this platform to pay it forward, uh, to share these, these, these stories, this knowledge to go deep into the specialized knowledge of the specific authorities and experts I've had on the show. And it kind of, it's like if I'm opening a restaurant tomorrow, these are the people I'm going to, to learn about these specific things. And if we can release one of these workshops every week for as far as we can see into the future, we're going to have an incredible content library. And not only that, we have people like even to, in today's show, Trey Smith said that he has his original business plan that he said he would share with me. We're going to host this over in Restaurant Unstoppable Network. So if you want access to live conversations, then that's the thing. These workshops going forward, these deep dive conversations, they're live. If you're in the network, you get to join me live during these conversations and you get to ask your questions to my network, my, my network of badass operators and experts. So if you want to be a part of this network and part of the change, Head over to restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com. One more time, restaurantunstoppablenetwork.com. So we're back. And the first question I have for you is what is your it factor, a habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success? Probably being a perfectionist, Mm. you know, or at least a perfectionist in the sense that you're never done tinkering and trying to make things better. I love it. What is your biggest weakness? probably being a perfectionist. It's amazing how so, how so often your, your biggest assets are your, also your biggest weaknesses. Yeah. Uh, for yeah. sure. Uh, what is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're building your team, when you're trying to surround yourself? What is your long-term goal? Mm, what are you looking for? Well, I'm, I'm more than anything. I think that just explains to me who they are. 
You know, if their long-term goal, it's okay if it has nothing to do with this. You know, if their long-term goal is to make it as a musician, but they just need a job and they're passionate about, you know, French wine or natural wine or whatever, it still teaches me something about them. And I just, I get an idea of where they might fit. I love it. What is your biggest challenge today? Well, I mean, obviously COVID's a pretty big challenge, Um, but I, I would say the biggest challenge right now is just planning. Mm. You know, it's hard to know. We've always, we've always planned out things and been very fortunate. It's hard to project during these times. It really is. What's the future hold? Nobody knows. I I mean, the thing is, is we reopened and right now our, our social distancing and everything feels really good. You know, everybody's wearing a mask and it feels really good, but what happens if somebody on our staff catches it, you know, when they're going to, yeah, so it's like you just don't know what's going to happen. Right now, the, the policy is if one of your staff tests positive, you have to close for two weeks, right? Correct. Until Correct. everybody has been cleared. And we would, you know, we would do that. But, you know, you start thinking to yourself, well, how unpredictable is it? You know, if 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 somebody gets sick and then you close down for some for two weeks or whatever, and then it happens to another person, it just makes it hard to so how are they regulating that? How do they know that you're testing people? Well, I mean, I, I can say this. Somebody from, somebody from the city called me about a week ago and asked me to detail everything that we're doing. And I explained to them how we do things, and they gave me some feedback. Uh, and I'm sure they'll follow up. But I think now they're just trying to figure out what people are doing. But I appreciated the fact that somebody actually called me, and I could explain to them, because we're a pretty... I'm not saying there's not concepts like this around the country or around the world, but there's not a concept that similar to this in town. Yeah. So it is nice to be able to tell somebody the way you do things. Yeah. And I never, I realized I never asked you about COVID-19. You can tell it's so obvious. I'm trying to get away from COVID-19. Sure. But, um, did, was there anything that we didn't get out in the, the interview since we're talking about it now that you want to bring to the conversation? I mean, we're really blessed. I mean, we feel really fortunate in the sense that we can scale, we can scale what we do based on, uh, how many people that come like if we're open, we're pretty nimble in terms of handling COVID. You know, we can do, we can close down the bar without a problem and just do six people in the dining room and have the appropriate amount of staff here to where we still profit that day versus, you know, if you're a downtown restaurant where you have $12,000 a month rent and a yeah. huge staff, you like, have to do volume because you, you have so many liabilities. So we're lucky in that sense, you yeah. know? Um, so, so I mainly feel for a lot of my, you know, friends that are in the industry. Cause obviously I don't want to see so many of these restaurants that I love struggle. Yeah. It's, it's rough, man. Um, thank you for getting into that. Uh, share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team. This is a core value, a way to be a way to act. Sure. Uh, well, I mean, I think probably a lot of people would say respect, but I would actually say one thing is communication. Mm. You know, if you see a miscommunication between two people, I think it's really important to grab those two people and make sure that they understand where that breakdown happened because people will start building up nothing in their mind into something. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody makes a comment and they didn't mean anything by it. And another person's like pissed three hours yeah, later. We all perceive things differently, you, you know, know, and we got to really take that into consideration for sure. Uh, what is one uncommon standard of service that happens within the four walls of your business, but not throughout the industry? Um, well, I would say this, I think we're one of the, so of restaurants that do the sort of tasting menu and formal service uh, that we do, um, it's still very casual in the way that people dress and things like that. You know, it's almost Can I eat here. Absolutely, nice. absolutely. <laughs> you know, it's it's we kind of say it's very professional actions, but very casual environment. Nice. 
What is one book that's a must read to make us a better person or operator? Ooh, that's 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 a tough one. I get a lot of good books uh, from from people. You can you can name multiple. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I mean, kid, as somebody who switched from law school to to cooking, you know, it was a pretty big shift for me. Uh, you know, Kitchen Confidential, you know, it's like, I'm sure that's a book that a lot of people say, but you know, the thing was, it was very accessible. It was very honest. You know, it's very different type of cooking than most of the kitchens I cooked in. But at the same time, it was really important for me to read that at that time to at least get some idea of what things were like in restaurants. I love it. Did you have multiple? Because you said it was hard for you to choose. I'll I'll settle for that one. It's a great book. (laughs) Off the top of my head, uh, yeah, I would say, I'm trying to think of some of the business books that we read. The problem is, is a lot of the business books that you would get and read about restaurants, they have really generic titles, like how to open a restaurant. Right. You know, and I, I... no disrespect to those authors, but I can't remember their names. <laughs> no, I feel you. Uh, if you can think of them, shoot me an email. Sure. Uh, the next question I have for you is what is one service you've hired or outsourced to that you've been really happy with? Not necessarily a technology, but like people doing something for you that you're not as good at doing yourself. Lawyer. Yeah. I mean, I, I, and I actually, it's funny because it's like I, I went to law school, like I'm not a lawyer, but I'm saying going to law school made me realize how important it is to have a lawyer. Who is your lawyer? Uh, It's a guy named John. uh, And he's, he's awesome. He's, it's not John Hotelling. No, no. His name's John Steger, but he, uh, he's awesome. uh, And he's done a lot of restaurant work and things, but, but he's a, he's a CPA uh, as well as an attorney. Yeah, we came from John Hotelling's house before this interview. Oh, okay, and okay. we covered what he's doing to with big uh, business interruption. Oh, that's awesome. And yeah, I mean, it's an incredible story. Like what they're doing, and uh, he's just he's a he's a watchdog, you know, for the industry. Oh. And that episode is going live in two days. So. It's, and if you have partners, yeah. do not set up your. If you have partners, you really really need a lawyer to set up your your bylaws and every yeah. yeah your partnership agreement everything because you never know what can happen. And having a lawyer that knows what could happen, like it's, don't get me wrong, it's an awkward conversation when you're sitting down with your partners and you plan on getting along for the lawyer to say, well, what if this person does this? What if this person does this? You know, what if this person gets married and gets divorced? And you just, you have to have those conversations. Yeah, you might as well have those conversations before. I mean, it's going to be more awkward later. Yes. Then right now when everything's okay. Yes. Right. Um, great advice. What is one technology you've outsourced to that's had a huge impact on your operation? I mean, I'll say, I mean, POS systems have gotten significantly better. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember in the early days of restaurants and I remember too having to learn how to use the POS for different things, you know, payroll and things like that. And they used to be so complicated and now they're, they feel like they're just so much easier. What do you use it? Uh, we use a local company. I even Dynex, I think, is what it is, but it's owned by uh, it own it's owned by the credit card processor we use. Okay, and it was just uh, I'm not saying it's the best for everything, but we're pretty simple in terms of what we need here. Yeah, so it just was really really well laid out for coincidentally what we needed to do. Got you. And this is the last question, so get ready for it. It's a doozy. Uh, if you got the news, you'd be leaving this world tomorrow. All the memories of you, your work, and your restaurants would be lost with your departure. With the exception of three pieces of wisdom you could leave behind for the good of humanity and for your legacy, what would those three pieces of wisdom be? Well, one would definitely be if you have a dream, take that leap. 
if you don't get it, at least you have the closure to know that you tried. That's one. Uh, two, I would say to enjoy enjoy the success that you have. You know, it's like like with this restaurant. You know, in our first year, you know, we were so we we're so blessed. You know, it's like we got James Beard semifinalists. We got GQ magazine best new restaurant. The thing is, is you could think about the things that you don't have, but you got to sit back and think like, how could this place with a pizza sign on front? You know, we put so much love into it and that resonates with people to where they actually come and then people tell other people about it. You know, it's like focus on what you have and not what you don't have. So take the leap, focus on what you have, what you don't have. And number three, number three is I would say work your butt off until it's time to not work your butt off anymore. How do you know it's not time? I think once you... Once you closure is huge, you know, so it's like kind of all the things that I talked about have to do with closure, you know, the closure of taking the leap, the, the closure of, you know, being thankful for what you have. And it's like, I think when it's time to stop working hard is when you have the closure where you're like, you know what, I'm satisfied with what I put in and I'm grateful for what I got out. And now it's time for me to just sit back and you know, just enjoy the moment. I love it, man. This has been a great chat. Thank you so much, Chef Trey Smith, for coming on the show. Um, we wrap up every chat by calling somebody out. That's how we found you. Our boy Diego Galicia called you out back in San Antonio. Who do you respect and admire and believe would make a great guest mentor like you made for us today? Well, I mean, obviously, Diego is somebody that I really respect. He's a great friend. But I, I, I would have to say Kevin Fink, yeah. which I think he also said. But the thing is, is if you sit down and talk to Kevin, it's like I, I like to think that I've learned and retained a lot about the restaurant business. But that's somebody who not only I mean, yes, I respect him as a friend. Like, I love him as a person. But if you ever talk like restaurant business with him, that's somebody where I A, am grateful for every conversation I have, but B, I kind of step back and, and say there's so much more I need to learn. Yeah, and, and he's been on my radar. Kevin Fink has been on my radar for a, a few months now, at least, and I would love to get him on the show, and we actually had him scheduled. I think I, I've, I've already told you the story. I've already told my listeners the story, Yeah, uh, and we there was a miscommunication, and we're doing our best to get him rebooked. Uh, I'd love to have him on the show. Kevin, we're coming after you, man. We're going to make it happen, uh, and how can we connect with you? Maybe you want to come join your team maybe we've been inspired by your story and maybe we just want to come eat here what's the best way to connect uh reach out on our instagram saint germain uh nola or at saint germain nola i would say that's the big one and that's uh saint like the saints go marching on hyphen g-e-r-m-a-i-n and uh do you have do you just hint hint, to drop your handles on us and i miss it uh, at St. Germain Nola okay. yeah, yeah. on Instagram. And uh, I'm not sure what episode number this is. Stick around for the closing thoughts. We'll drop the episode number on you. You just head over to restaurantstoppable.com slash whatever the episode number is. And again, thank you so much, Trey Smith, for taking the time. Thank you. Thank you. There, Pleasure. There is no questioning. You are unstoppable. Thanks, brother. Cheers. Thank you. There we go. Another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. I hope you all found value. Thanks again, Trey Smith, for coming on, sharing your story sharing your knowledge. Tons of great stuff came out of it. I think the big takeaway for me in today's episode is just approaching your restaurant in a way to make it sink proof. You know, I think when people open a restaurant, they're trying to think about how big can I get? How great can I be? How much money can we make? But if you take that approach and you flip it and say, what do I have to do just to make sure that we are sink proof and putting, you know, realistic numbers down and just getting 
real and sincere with yourself about what you're realistically going to do and then building a business around that. And I also love this idea of multiple partners and uh Building, like they use the S corp model to protect themselves and make sure they're paying themselves first. I think that's something we get in a lot of trouble in this industry. We pay ourselves last. You got to pay yourself first. You got to set your business up in a way that can do that. There's a lot of ways to do that, right? And developing an S corp seems to be just one of them. Uh, I know Profit First is another cash management system that is great for this. So if you're interested in Profit First, let me know. I'll uh, hook you up with some great resources there. And, uh, I just love this this mentality of trust too. The trust that they have within their partnerships. Uh, these people have been friends for a long time. They've worked with each other for a long time. They knew what they were getting themselves into when they entered into this partnership. So you're only as good as the people in your partnership. So they knew know that the level of trust between the partners is incredible. I just love that. And I need to put emphasis on it. So that's it for today, guys. Before I say goodbye, I want to remind you that we are launching Restaurants Unstoppable Network. This is my attempt to reflect on over two or sorry over 700 interviews who made the biggest influences on me during that time i want to re- reconnect with these people and go deeper into their areas of expertise i want to round off a content library of everything you need to know a through z on how to open and run a successful restaurant and this is going to be happening live for as far as i can see into the future and i want you to come on this journey with me and join join me for these conversations live and ask your questions to my guests if you want to do this if you want join the conversation if you want to be a part of the restaurant unstoppable inner circle head over to restaurant unstoppable network.com uh, we have ari Wineswag joining us this wednesday to talk about visioning you can be there live for the conversation what are you waiting for all right guys until next time peace out